You're listening to Westminster on the Fly, a podcast from the Appalachian Roundtable with your host, Pastor Andy Steyer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of Westminster on the Fly. Uh, I am your host, the Right Reverend Andrew L. Steyer. <laughs> uh, I'm just joking about the Right Reverend part, although I am a reverend, I guess, though not very reverent. Uh, I am the pastor here at Canal Salines Presbyterian Church in Malden, West Virginia. Malden is just a few miles east of the capital city of Charleston, and uh, unless you're my mom or I'm in trouble, don't ever call me Andrew. Uh, Most people just call me Andy. So I'm glad to be able to be with you today. We are working through the Westminster Standards beginning with the Shorter Catechism. And this week, we are looking at the third question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So the first question and answer, and hopefully you see the flow that's happening here, was what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What were we created for? We are created to glorify God, meaning we are created to worship him, to serve him, uh, to uh, live in such a way that glorifies his great and holy name and makes his glorious attributes and his kingdom known to the world around us. And we were created to enjoy him. We were created to have fellowship with him, harmony with him, delight in him, have peace and communion with him. Uh, And the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, reminds us of that. Uh, And then the catechism goes into examining uh, this issue of the Word of God and what the Word of God teaches us. The next question and answer that we looked at last week was, what rule or what guide has God given us to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy Him? How do we know how to live for the glory of God, how to worship Him? How do we know what it means to be in fellowship and communion with him, how to enjoy God? Well, the answer is the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So we talked about that last week, episode two, how we know uh, from the word of God, uh, what it means to actually live in a way which glorifies and enjoys, uh, which glorifies and enjoys God. Today, now, we're continuing to look at this doctrine of the scriptures, uh, and we are looking at question and answer three, as I said before. What do the scriptures principally teach? They teach us what we're to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. So they teach us the doctrine of God. They teach us how to live. Uh, and in other words, some people have said it teaches us orthodoxy, upright belief, 
and orthopraxy, upright living. And notice for the Westminster divines, the two cannot be separated. And I think this is right. I think this is the biblical teaching. You cannot live right. You cannot have a life of orthopraxy if you do not believe right. Your beliefs and your practices can never be separated. This is sort of a um, countercultural idea. Many churches, whether they be evangelical or mainline liberal denominations, many churches will say, we don't focus on doctrine, we focus on doing. Uh, So we don't necessarily concern ourselves with right belief. We want to focus on the orthopraxy, the right living. Well, tell me. Tell me how it is that you can live right if you do not believe right. If you don't believe the right things about God, if you don't believe the right things about his word, how will you ever live in a way which glorifies God, which enjoys God, Because that's what the scriptures teach. And only the scriptures teach us this and and show us how to live and enjoy God. So uh, this morning, it is morning when I'm recording this episode. (laughs) It kind of sounded like I was preaching there. This morning, I want us to look at uh, this idea that the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Uh, Now, let me just say this. This is what the scriptures principally teach. It does not mean that the scriptures don't also teach us other things. Another common uh, idea that we hear often is that people will say, well, we believe the Bible is inspired, infallible, as it pertains to things like uh, the revelation of God, and uh, how we are to live. So they would say, the scriptures are our authority in life concerning um, who God is and what he expects from us, all that we need for faith and life, which is very true. But they'll say things like, but you can't necessarily trust the scriptures on other issues. Um, You can't trust it on history, for example, or even science, you know, recognizing, um, you know, the Bible wasn't written as a science textbook or a historical record. And, uh, you know, first off, that's not true. There's quite a bit in the sacred scriptures which do serve as real historical records. And when the Bible does address issues of science, and it's intending to address issues of science, whether that's biology or uh, anything else really that it addresses, then we need to be able to trust it as well and take it as it is indeed the word of God. Take it as the word of God. Uh, I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, if you cannot trust the Bible on areas like, or in areas like history or science, then what makes you think that you can trust it in areas concerning faith and life. Um, So what the divines are saying here is not that the Bible is not somehow authoritative or infallible in all those other areas. It is simply focusing in on what the principal teachings of the Word of God are. 
what the Bible is primarily, principally concerned about is revealing God to us and showing us how we are to live. And so with that in mind, let's, let's look at this uh, question and answer from the Shorter Catechism in a little more detail now. Um, and reflecting on this, I have to start by asking this question, how many times have we heard people, both Christians and non-Christians, say something like this? Well, my God is like this. Or my God is like that. And then they will go on, they will continue to give a description of really a God which is of their own invention, a God which is of their own creation, a God which is everything they like and nothing that they don't like. Uh, A good example of this is several years ago, and I really cannot remember the article uh, too much. I can't remember who wrote it or where I read it, but I'm sure many of you have probably read articles like this. Um, but several years ago, I did uh, read an article by a quote-unquote progressive theologian, and the article, it was written to describe how progressive uh, Christians and in his term, Christians, understand the Bible. And of course, in this article, the the author gave lip service to the Bible. They always do. Yes, we believe it's inspired. Although, when you dig into their definition of what inspired is, uh, it's oftentimes not the biblical understanding and the, the historical understanding of that word inspired. Uh, inspired really means expired, uh, that uh, all scripture is breathed out by God. Usually, uh, people like this will use the word inspired to simply mean that uh, a modern day comparison might be a painter who's inspired by the sunset, or a musician who is inspired by the human spirit, or something like that. That's usually what they mean when they use the word inspired today. Very different from the doctrine of biblical inspiration. But this article will give lip service to the Bible, say, yes, it's inspired. Yes, it's authoritative on certain things, on certain things, but not on everything. Uh, But then the article went on to say that progressives do not believe that everything the Bible says is true and accurate. So right there, they've undermined the doctrine of inspiration. But we might ask, okay, well, what parts of the Bible would a progressive Christian like this author reject? And of course, it's, it's no surprise that any part of the Bible that presents God as wrathful, vengeful, jealous, and so on, These are the parts of the Bible that the author, uh, that this progressive Christian would reject. Because in his mind, these attributes of God, his vengeance, his jealousy, his wrath, and uh, really, ultimately, although they would say they love the idea of a just God, 
ultimately his justice as well, um, they are simply incompatible with his understanding of God. This author would go on to write about a God full of love. Amen. God is love. Thank, thank God that he is a God of love, a, a God of steadfast love. Uh, he would write about a God of compassion, a God of patience, a God of faithfulness. Again, amen, all of these things are true. This is the God we serve, a patient, compassionate, faithful, loving God. He would write about a God of grace and mercy. Although, when progressive Christians write about God's mercy, you really have to stop and think, well, what does mercy even mean? If there is no divine wrath poured out upon rebellious, wicked sinners, then what is mercy? Because the biblical understanding of mercy, just to put it in broad terms, there's nuances to this, of course, which we won't get into this morning. But in general, I think it's right to say we could understand mercy as God not giving us what we deserve, God withholding from us what we deserve, which is his wrath for our sin. If God does not have divine wrath, then what is mercy? What is mercy? So it's a little strange to me that the, this author would write about a God of mercy, but it's again, it's common. It's common for uh, progressive Christians to do this. And yes, again, the Bible certainly does reveal God to be all of those things, gracious, merciful, compassionate, patient, faithful, loving, and so on. But the Bible does also reveal a God who is perfectly just, a God who is jealous for his own glory and jealous for his bride. The Bible reveals to us a God who is full of wrath towards the unholy, a God who has a natural repulsion towards that which is unclean. That's what the Bible says. That's the God of the Bible. And it's not just the God of the Old Testament, by the way. It's also the God of the New Testament. One of the most startling verses in all of the Bible comes from the book of Revelation, where uh, John writes about the wrath of the Lamb. We often think of Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Lamb who is meek and mild. Revelation chapter 6 speaks about that Lamb, that meek, mild Lamb is pouring out his wrath. So these things are not just true of the God of the Old Testament. Some some heretics have said that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and vengeance and jealousy, but the God of the New Testament is revealed in Jesus Christ is meek and mild um, and loving and, and all of that. But Revelation chapter 6 reminds us again that it is the same God, the same God. And Jesus Christ, the very image of the invisible God, 
has all of his divine attributes, including his wrath. And so, again, getting back to this article, I tend to go on these little tangents a little bit. Getting back to this article, uh, it became clear as you read this article that the author was not using the Bible, the Word of God, to shape his understanding of who God is. Rather, he was forming his own God based upon a fallen human understanding of what he believes God should be. That's idolatry. That is idolatry. That is making a golden calf to represent what you think God is like as opposed to forming your understanding and view of God based upon his word. This author would openly discredit parts of the sacred scriptures as simply being wrong if those portions of scripture presented attributes of God that seemed to contradict the God he has invented in his own mind. This, under, this, this approach to understanding God, um, it of course for the author had huge implications on his theology. Uh, along with defining the rules and parameters of who he thinks God is, which is what he, he did, he basically created in his own mind a sort of fence, a box if you will, within which he thinks God has to fit. He would then go on to form a set of rules and parameters for how a Christian should live and act based upon his view of God. And because this author was able to discredit a God of wrath and justice and holiness, he was essentially able to justify any lifestyle, any sin, anything he wants uh, to justify, he could do it based upon whether he deems it to be loving or fair or in lines with his notion of God and his notion of what God's justice actually is. And so you see, even in that article that I read several years ago, you see how orthopraxy and orthodoxy were connected. And you see how he began with an incorrect understanding of who God is and how that led to him not only um, rejecting the God of the Bible, but rejecting God's holy standards for how the human race is supposed to live and act. Uh, the reality is, you know, it's easy for us, and if you're listening to this podcast, then maybe you might be uh, more... Uh, Orthodox in your understanding of the Word of God, meaning uh, you 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 hold to I hate to use the word traditional, but it is a traditional understanding of inspiration, and you take God's Word to be infallible and inerrant and authoritative, and you believe that what the Bible says about who God is, you believe it to be true. But the reality is, whether that's you or whether you're a progressive Christian, it's it's. Uh, it's easy for us to sort of point fingers at other people and say they're the ones who are forming God after their own making. Um, we can all look at other people and think, well, they're the ones who are wrong in this. But 
we need to realize all of us can do this. All of us can fall into the trappings of letting our fallen notions of fairness or justice or love or kindness, uh, we can all fall into, we can, we can all trust our fallen notions of those ideas and try to conform God into our corrupted understanding of things like justice or love. And again, it's idolatry, plain and simple. All of us are probably guilty of it at times. And, you know, here's the real kicker of it. Our own thoughts, our own opinions, we need to understand absolutely that they are not our guide to what we should believe concerning God. God himself has condescended to us to reveal his character and nature. And he's done it. He's done it in a few ways. First, he's done it in the works of creation. And we can think of Romans 1, that his glorious attributes are on display for us in the things which are made. And had mankind not rebelled against God, by the way, had we not fallen into sin, we would be able to look at the creation and fully comprehend our creator. Of course, sin has ruined that. But God has also revealed himself primarily then in the pages of scripture. God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And that leaves us with one of two uh, responses. We either accept the scriptures as revelation, revelation of God to us, of the infinite God to us, finite creatures, or we, we reject the scriptures as revelation. But the reality is there is no middle ground here. There's no cherry picking the parts of the Bible that we like and discarding the parts we don't like. There's no cherry picking the attributes of God that he has revealed to us in scripture. There's no saying, why well, like this part about who God says he is, but I don't like this part about who God says he is. There's no middle ground. The Bible alone gives us the revelation we need to know who God is. And if we seem to feel that there are contradictions and how God has revealed himself in the scriptures. In other words, if we believe, you know, there's a contradiction between maybe who God show, has shown himself to be in the Old Testament over and against who he has revealed himself to be in the New Testament through the person of Jesus Christ, the problem then is not in God's word. It is not in the scriptures. It is not in God's revelation. The problem is in our understanding of it. God cannot contradict himself. And if the Bible truly is his word, there will not be a contradiction within the pages of scripture, especially concerning who God has revealed himself to be. So we are not free to simply cast aside portions of scripture that we believe present God to be something that we simply do not like. We must 
let the revelation of God mold and shape our understanding of him. And we must be careful not to let our understanding of God mold and shape what we think the Bible says. Or be more careful that we don't let our understanding of things like justice and goodness and love and so on uh, mold and shape what we think God should or should not be like. Once we are able to see who God truly is, as he has revealed himself to be in the pages of the Bible, then, and only then, are we able to see what duty God requires of us. Again, you cannot have orthopraxy, upright living, upright practice, if you do not first have orthodoxy, upright belief. Now, there's an interesting verse, John chapter 5, verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus, um, he says something uh, pretty remarkable there. Uh, John chapter 5, and um, he, is, he is speaking uh, to, uh, I'm just reading the passage here again. It's been a while since I've read it, um, but... Uh, he is he's speaking to a crowd here, and, and uh, we have to believe many of the religious leaders were present. And Jesus, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. So how, how does all of this relate to Christ's words in John 5 verse 39? It's Again, it's remarkable. It's actually quite remarkable what Jesus is saying here. Because what Jesus is saying, what he is revealing about himself in these words, is that he is God in the flesh. And he is the fulfillment of biblical revelation. Remember, at that time, the only scriptures that were complete were the Old Testament. And he is saying everything in the Old Testament was revealing himself. The Old Testament laws and rituals, they were a revelation of Jesus Christ. The prophets, the laws, the priests, the temple, the sacrifices, the feasts, they were all revelation of God. More specifically, they were revelation of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. Do we want to know what God is like and what he requires of us? Then we need to look in faith to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself is the embodiment of God's revelation to us. Look at his character, his attributes, his life of perfect obedience, his substitutionary death on the cross, his resurrection, his glorification, and we learn all of that from the word of God. And when we read and study what is written of Jesus Christ, we see a full revelation which is completely consistent with all other scriptures. We see the full revelation of who God is. We also see the full revelation of what duty God requires of us. So that's the third question 
of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, uh, our episode next week, we're going to see a shift in the focus of the confession. We have been talking, or I'm sorry, of the Shorter Catechism. We have been talking, uh, we have been talking about the um, doctrine, really, of Scripture. You know, we, we began with that great question and answer, what is man's chief, de- chief end? But the last two questions dealt ultimately with the doctrine of theology of Scripture. Our next question is, what is God? What is God? Uh, and God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's what God is according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We'll unpack that next week. But I want you to notice something. Uh, when you set out to study systematic theology, and I do believe the Westminster divines, the men who wrote the confession and the catechisms, were setting out to write a systematic theology, you, you have one of two places where you can start. You can start with your doctrine of God, and that's where many, many systematic theologies begin, even within the Reformed tradition, or you can start with your doctrine of Scripture. The Westminster divines decided to start with the doctrine of Scripture. Why? Well, for the very reasons that we talked about today. It is because within the Scriptures, uh, we come to understand God. The Scriptures provide for us the revelation we need to understand the doctrines of God. If we want to understand God properly, we must begin with His Word. If we want to know the character and nature of God, we must begin by understanding the character and nature of His Word. And so uh, we've talked about that for the last couple of weeks. Next week, we will uh, begin to look at the doctrine of God. So Again, I hope you will join us next week. Thank you for listening today uh, to this podcast, and I hope that it was encouraging to you. I hope it spurs you on to study the scriptures and take the scriptures seriously and treat the Bible as what it is, the word of God, the very revelation of the infinite God to us finite creatures.